Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, we are bringing you the Venture Brothers podcast. I am your host, Ilana Levin, also known on Twitter as Ilana Brooklyn. And my co-host is joining me as ever, uh, fellow New Yorker, Stephen Adwell. Hello. Also our resident actual historian. I feel like increasingly my role here is to play art historian sans actual advanced degree. So that's been that's been working out pretty well this cycle. Um, and we're here to help you listeners dig into the themes of the Venture Brothers show and all of the cultural and historical references that it contained therein. This episode has a lot of New York in it, too, and we're going to be able to talk about that as well as some of the significant themes that play out, not just in this episode, but really throughout the whole season here. This is episode seven, sorry, season seven, episode eight, The Terminus Mandate. Uh, which is referring to the um, the fat you know the the sort of plot contrivance of the episode that the guild uh, council members have to end their arching careers so it's the mandate to terminate and the terminus is also the name for the end of a subway line or train and, line and your observation the other day that the episodes from this season all sound like action movies or suspense well movies. spy movies yeah spy movies yeah yeah yeah. I'm trying to think about why that is, but they, they all do, but I don't know. If uh, like things like, well, actually, I think you're right. Also like thriller movies. Like I think mm-hmm. like the Pelican brief, yeah. um, you know, the Thomas crown affair, like, you know, those sorts of, um, names. Yeah. Day of the Jackal. Mm-hmm, that kind of thing. Some of the, th- but like, do you have any thoughts about why? Um, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, they always like the the episode names are always you know puns of various kinds. Like they're playing on various things. Like I thought it had a lot to do with kind of the blue morpho stuff, and the, like there is this kind of ongoing espionage theme with like the mole, and we had a heist episode, you know, yeah. last episode. So they're certainly like playing in this genre space. I don't, you know, I don't particularly have like especially you know now that the sort of blue morpho trilogy is over. Like, I've got less a sense of, like, the the overall directionality of the season, I think. Gotcha. But I do think the themes in here are ones that are sort of consistent through the season. I mean, a couple of things that we pointed out are things like, you know, maturing out of your old patterns and your old self. And so how that can sometimes butt up against nostalgia for the past. And sometimes it can coexist really healthily. It's sort of a question depending on the individual. Mm Mm-hmm. Existentially questioning the game of heroes and villains here. Definitely some characters having ennui about it. Other people still wanting to play. And another big theme again, and especially see this with um, Dr. Mrs. and the monarch, uh, is what does it mean to be a good partner? And then this episode in particular, we're looking at a lot about what classic villainy versus contemporary villainy and how that organizes itself and what its tropes are. And which is the coolest. And I also think we kind of see a series of relativity. Some things are more classic. Everything has something that's more classic than it. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one thing about this episode that drove me crazy, though, is I actually needed to put closed captioning on. I've never had to put closed captioning on to understand an episode before. Yeah, I, some of the voices are a little bit hard this, uh, this uh, episode. Hmm. Uh, okay, so um, 
So the episode starts with uh, Dr. Mrs. and the Red Death going into Vincenzo's Pizza for a sit-down. Um, they end up uh, arguing with uh, Phantom Limb about whether they were going to go there openly wearing costumes or in civilian clothes, which I think kind of fits into that whole thing about like classic versus contemporary, different mm-hmm. kind of ways of doing the villainy thing. Um, I thought it was interesting, like, Red Death is wearing this, like leather jacket and beret combo that I was like, what is that from that looks familiar with something? You know, I I saw that and I was going to just say it looks really freaking cool, but I'm wondering now if it actually is. Um, it, it looks like very spy and very 70s. And I just am Googling. I, I'd love to hear from our listeners if you identify it particularly, but like. I, I, it might just be a certain milieu, but yeah, it's definitely very 70s, very action hero. And I don't know specifically which one, but it's got he's got good taste. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, yeah, so the, you know, Phantom Limb uh, is there in costume and then has to go change. Uh, meanwhile, in the same cafe. And I just love oh, that sorry. none of yeah, the New Yorkers, ahead. none of the New Yorkers are even acknowledging that there's a guy dressed up is in a purple outfit right there and like that doesn't have visible arms limbs. and legs but yeah, is somehow it's just walking. New York. yeah it's just new york you know yeah um so meanwhile rusty is meeting with night dick to get information about a Teresa die day um now night dick is from season six he's one of the members of the crusaders action league the sort of new york-based uh superhero team uh, that charges people money for, for protecting them. And I've always seen him as like, he's a bit of the Punisher. He's a bit of Ghost Rider and he's a bit of the spirit. And that's true generally. But in this particular episode, the way his face is drawn is literally Dick Tracy's profile. And I think that makes sense because this is the episode where he's strictly appearing as Night Dick. So, I mean, the name is is right there. Yeah. Um. So... Yeah, so he's there to give uh, Rusty information about Teresa Die Day. Um, I was a little bit confused about how their conversation started. Like, yeah. did Night Dick just call him? He's like, hey, I'm keeping up on these bad guys, and I want to tell you about this new threat and how you should pay me money to stop her. Like, I, 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 I extrapolated that, but I wasn't exactly sure. Yeah, I, I, I maybe I, read, I missed something. So I read on, on the comment threads a suggestion that he might be uh, her ex. Yes, that makes a great deal of sense. Uh, because um, one of the things that's sort of uh, kind of funny about her plotline this episode is the whole, like, Black Widow thing seems to be, like, totally ginned up versus reality. Yeah. You know, she's definitely, like, back in the day, she was on the hero side, although yep. it's a little bit sort of on a cat burglary, kind of Catwoman-ish way um, of the equation. And, like, you know, she says that she's got some skeletons in her closet, but that her, like, reputation is a little bit exaggerated. So I wonder whether he's just kind of pissed off that, you know, uh, I guess their relationship didn't survive his death um, because he's a cop who got brought back from the dead. Yeah, Um, I think that that's likely the case. And I also think that it's really a good example of the way... you know, men will try to manipulate and lie about women's history to manipulate them and control mm-hmm. them. But I, but I, but my question was, is I'm trying to figure out how Dick 
reached out to Rusty. Like it was a specifically like he was trying to he's trying he's this is one of his extract one of his extortion moments. Yeah, or, I don't know. Yeah. Like you know, I mean my guess given the way that Rusty's acting more generally is that like he's looking for women who fit this profile cuz like now that he's rich he wants a uh a trophy girlfriend. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say he wants to be a, a sugar daddy, but, um, and we'll get to that when we get to his whole thing, which is kind of weird. Um, so I, in I, the moment, I also really liked that he said like that, how, um, Dick described her as like, oh, she didn't exist till she was 26. And that whole idea that like some woman that you're with that has no past before you and is just yeah defined by her relationships with the men she has, it's like very much a textbook illustration of the character sexism in ways that are disturbingly realistic. Yeah. Um, so Rusty is way more interested in the upside of kinky sex than the downside of being murdered. <laughs> in fact, like one of the things I'm really curious about is just like how he thinks this all worked. Like the, the way that the, the, the scheme works in general, because right. he almost seemed to be like trying to be murdered, but not murdered at the same time. Anyway. Um, so, as this is happening, um, oh, I was just going to say, like, no wonder dating, you know, Rusty's, like, dating career is so fucked up, because, like, <laughs> he clearly seems to just, like, get these terrible ideas, especially sort of superhero and super villainy adjacent ideas, and then just run with it. Um, so, Blind Rage shows up to meet the villains. Uh, he's kind of a villain riff on Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Um... Now, you had something to say about his look. Yeah, his his casual wear, which is where we first see him, that's totally Vin Diesel's coat from X, And his particular fashion style seems to be dated around the same years as the most recent X movies. So even though I, I'm pretty sure that in real life, Vin Diesel is actually a pretty cool dude, uh, he's totally playing into the sort of worst bro performance that you possibly can have you know, of a contemporary guy. I think that's particularly apt because the whole thing about triple X was that he was supposed to be like uh, a generation the, X James Bond. James Bond. Yeah. So like given the whole ongoing theme about like classic versus contemporary, he's definitely on the, on the contemporary side. Um, so we find out that the Peril Partnership had some sort of kickback deal with the Wide Whale to stay out of New York City, and Dr. Mrs. basically says the Guild doesn't. Yeah, I think it's significant because the question is, like, what is each organization's approach to business? Does just giving some a smaller group a kickback to keep them out of your way, is that the more mature path, or... Is yeah. being completely true to your value of saying that no, we are the way to do this. Is that truer? It's really a debatable question for the villains in this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this more when we get to like what the Guild Council decides to do about this. But like, I think there's a pretty clear sign in terms of like who's on what side. Well, I think that it, Wide Whale is very transactional. He's yes. really interested. He's the most down to earth, connected to the actual structures of how mafia run in the real world of all yeah. the characters. I mean, he's 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 sort of. He's, he's not in so it. that's what he does. Yeah, I mean, he's not in it for the villainy. He's just sort of a more violent businessman. Yeah, so it makes sense that he would look at what's the path of least resistance and just do it to get them out of his hair. Yeah. Um, so, you know, oh, and, you know, I think an example of that is, like, 
the whole reason why last season was a thing is that, like, Wide Whale turned around and, like, sub-leased or subcontracted out his arching of Dr. Venture. Mm-hmm. So, like, he doesn't even do his own thing. He just, um, you know, he, he just sort of, you know, subcontracts. He's a businessman. Uh, yeah, yeah, he outsources. Thank you. Um, so, Blind Rage uh, threatens the guild with basically, like, violating the whole kind of, like, um, masquerade element of what they do while chewing on their, the last stuffed pepper that Phantom Limb was supposed to be saved, and argues that the guild are has-beens, which, you know, there's the theme of the, the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, Red Death is, like, instantly pissed off about this. Um, and, like, 21... Uh, sorry, not 21, God. Uh, Dr. Miss is kind of... Um, uh, tries to de-escalate a little bit, uh, and that's when Phantom Limb shows up late in a stolen uh, pizza chef's restaurant. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> uniform yeah and it's, it's you know phantom limb is really not sorry not phantom limb uh red death is super not gonna have it with the the sexual harassment that yeah. blind rage is trying to pull on dr mrs um but he's also very traditional he's like pulls her chair back is defending her honor so he's like sort of trying to put himself in as like a positive side of being old school yeah um even though that can also be interpreted as being uh, what's the word I'm looking for? being uh, demeaning but it's definitely not the same as sexually harassing people so there you go the thing that I, I read on the comment threads that I want to flag up as a potential idea um, I don't know how I feel necessarily about this story direction but on the AV Club um, comments someone brought up the possibility that uh, Dr. Mrs. might be pregnant uh, because apparently Blind Rage says something about how uh, her boobs were bigger, but she wasn't on her period. So my theory that my theory on that is that, um, and I haven't read that until you just brought it up right now. Yeah, is that he's just literally wrong. Ah, okay, <laughs> but I'm not that theory. I'm not saying that theory is definitely. Um, I'm not saying that like that's completely definitely not true. Like that might actually be what the show is doing, and it, it, it would be an interesting direction. And in terms of their relationship, one I think is super risky to have a male dominant writing staff take on, frankly. But you know, but um, I don't assume that he's act. I, I I don't assume that he's correct. He might just be talking out of his ass because he he misses a number of things. It's sort of a he's posturing a lot. We then cut from there to the Meteor Majeure, which I just love that name. Yeah. Um, and the council is discussing the kickback. Now, the reason why I said, like, I think it's important who's for and who's against. Dr. Mrs. and Dr. Z are both against. And I think the Red Death is kind of two. Yeah. Um, whereas Wide Whale is four, Phantom Limb is four, and ultimately it turns out the, the majority is four. Um, and, like, to me, that kind of speaks to the classical versus contemporary is that, like, Dr. Z is old school. Like, he is of the old school. He is, you know, the antagonist from the thing that inspired Venture Brothers, literally. Uh, we'll get to that more. Um, whereas, you know, Wide Whale and Phantom Limb are, you know, Phantom Limb is way more tied to the guild than than 
Wide Whale is, but they're more, mm-hmm. you know, they're in it for the money. They're in it for the sort of the perks. They're not sort of uh, esthetes about it. Uh, so Red Death uh, makes decide, you know, announces that he'll make the drop. Which there's your clue of the of the kickback. Um, Doctor Z, uh, sorry. Dr. C says in response to Dr. Mrs. Uh, mentioning the whole uh, Council of Thirteen thing and the fact that they don't have Thirteen, uh, I'll be your Huckleberry. It's a reference to Tombstone, the movie. Uh, and Dr. Mrs. Uh, says um, that she's found out that you don't actually need Thirteen members on the Council of Thirteen, uh, but that you can't be active villains anymore. So my question is, if one of the things that Wide Whale was trying to extract last season was a seat on the council and one of the things that Dr. Girlfriend has fought to have was a seat on the council. Why is the council currently short of members? Um, I think that you could ask, well, maybe there aren't other villains who uh, this the council thinks is worthy of joining them. That's, you know, they're like, okay, there's nobody else who's as good or at this as we are or responsible who we would trust to put in this position. But um, I'm not exactly sure that that's the reason. So there's also, there's, I think a lot of it has to do with attrition at the top. So the Sovereign killed most of the Guild Council uh, in uh, all that in Gargantua 2. Mm-hmm. So it just created a massive vacancy. And then um, Gary and the Monarch killed a whole bunch of people who were above him in the, in the hierarchy um, last season. So I think part of the problem is that they're getting... And the guild, like, started to deal with some difficulties that, like, people were, like, threatening to to leave or, like, stop paying their dues because they felt they weren't getting the protection that they paid for. So I think they're having a bit of a sort of staffing reputation problem. It just seems like this would be a really natural moment for any of the current just regular level villains to step into that power vacuum themselves. So I guess I'm going to assume that they just think that the people who could be doing that are not worthy of joining them. Mm. So um, the upshot of all of this is the Terminus Mandate, that each member of the council gets a final uh, arch um, to sort of cap their career, or they have to resign from the council. That's the sort of, you know, retire or resign, essentially. I think it's just really to be thought of like an anti-conflict of interest yeah uh, policy in fact the sort of the complicated language that dr mrs talks about is like setting aside your your individual grudge for the sort of greater malice of the society um meanwhile over at uh ventec headquarters or sorry ventec tower uh hank is helping rusty out with uh facebook slash online dating uh rusty is getting a little bit too um uh, graphic about like why he wants to do this and what he's into. Um, Brock is basically saying that black widows are kind of a bad way to get laid in general. And Mm -hmm. Rusty gets a little bit too honest about why he doesn't want to go out and just date like a normal person. Yeah. There's this amazing, his tirade is such like a gross character reveal. Like he says, I don't want to be laughed at and denied or treated like the pathetic person. I clearly am. And I'm just like, oh, my God, Rusty the incel. Like, that just mm-hmm. feels like dialogue straight off of a current, you know, incel-type message board. Um, so I think that's some really on-the-nose writing there. 
Yeah, and I'm glad. And then the question of of like old way of dating, i.e., being approached versus like this online dating, goes back into the new and versus the old. Mm -hmm. And I can say like I would totally help my parents set up online dating profiles, but not if they were going into that level of uh, specificity. Exactly. Like I and I I have given feedback on my dad's uh, like you know online dating photo stuff back in the day, but like exactly like there's you need to have a limit uh, between between that you know. So um, we skip from there to the Monarch Mansion, which is looking very swank. Um, I noticed the the gate with the the Monarch logo on it in gold. Clearly, I mean, money well chic, spent. Very chic wallpaper really does come into play now. Yeah. Um, so the Monarch is really pissed that uh, Doctor Mrs. is basically going to be resigning as his number two and didn't ask him about this. And you know, it's like. Partly this is their kind of ongoing um, relationship career drama, mm-hmm. but it also has to do with the fact that, like, their quote-unquote marriage um, was a declaration of them being, um, like, a duo villainy. That's true. That is what their license was for. Um. So, you know, like, in a sense, like, this is really sort of raising the stakes of like your career versus your marriage if that's the if that's the read and you know honestly like one should discuss major career changes with one's partner but one should decide for themselves ultimately like that's really what it is it's like have that conversation but then don't let somebody saying trying to hold you back keep you from doing what you need to do like that's not acceptable so yeah. we'll see where that lands. Uh, so the monarch doesn't want to work through it. Gary is bad at comforting people. And uh, Dr. Mrs. finds out that uh, her target is her worst defeat as uh, au pair. Now this I thought was particularly interesting because, you know, in terms of like the, the overarching story of Dr. Mrs. and villainy, like, She's always kind of been uncomfortable as, like, there was that whole thing for a long time about how she didn't, you know, she preferred to be a number two than to be on her own as a villain. Um, She didn't like being the au pair. So it's kind of interesting to see her go back to that. Um, So we find out that her worst defeat was that she was very close to getting the Faith Diamond, a.k.a. the Hope Diamond, which actually has a fascinating history. Um, is it on display at the National History Museum? Natural History Museum here? No, no, it's in D.C. It's in the Smithsonian. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's one of the, the biggest um, diamonds in the world. Um, and, you know, it supposedly got this, like, whole... Curse. Uh, yeah, curse that, you know, the people who, who buy it, um, you know, bad things happen to them. Uh, which, you know, is prob <laughs> as the Wikipedia page says, possibly due to agents trying to arouse interest in the stone. Yeah, which is interesting, actually. That parallels something that I'm going to talk about later that I hadn't thought about as a parallel. But, um, of course, we know who really suffered from the acquisition of the stone, the people who had to mine it. Yes. Um, and we find out that... Uh... Sorry, I have lost my place. Oh, right, that uh, she gets stopped by Novia, a.k.a. Teresa Dide. Um, and I, lo- I love the name, like, 
So I, oh, I've mentioned this before and I didn't go into it. So Teresa's name, Die Day, I kept thinking, like, I feel like it's the root word of, for something that has to do with marriage, but I couldn't quite find it. Um, but Deodem is a small, uh, narrow headband crown that was sort of associated with Grecian fashion. And guess what she's wearing? Yeah. A diadem. But Novia is Spanish for fiance. So there you have it. Right. Um, and she's very much a wedding themed superhero, maybe? Yes. Yeah, Sorry? I think she's pretty clearly a superhero and not like a burglar and not a cat burglar. Well, the, the reason I'm curious is like if they're doing a Hope Diamond thing, maybe the reason why like she's seen as having a. Um, you know, being a black widow or whatever, is that like the curse has followed her and has killed her husbands or whatever. Oh, that's possible too. But yeah, um, I think like when you have like Novia, whose whole theme is fiance-ness, it's, um, and this is before Dr. Girlfriend became Dr. Girlfriend. This is back in her single years, right? Yeah. And so. specifically, like she says, like, I've always been more of a working girl. Um, so that there's, yeah, sorry, career girl. Um, so there's, like, that kind of dichotomy going on. Um, and it's kind of interesting to sort of see how that plays out now that they meet each other later. Um, anyway, so Novia throws an exploding bouquet and makes off with the diamond. Um, so uh, you had something you want to say about doubling? No, no, that's just, it's really, really, it's like a, just the theme between the two of them, like we established. And you see more of that conversation later ah. when they, when they run into each other outside yeah. the building. So meanwhile, we see Phantom Lim and his like very kind of grody, uh, 60s pad, uh, with like assistants holding up plates for him in lingerie as he talks to his and old rubbing arch. his, rubbing his ghostly feet. Yeah, um, as he talks to his old arch and sets up a midnight appointment at Central Park. And this is a scene that watching it on the second time was like a thousand percent funnier. I mean, we don't even actually know that it is funny other than, I guess, the visual gag of having his feet being massaged the first time around. But the second time around, we know what that conversation actually entails. And you realize how the phone call, like, and I can even hear it in Hunter Gather's voice the second time around of Hunter Gathers, what he proposes to him and Phantom Limb saying, oh my God, yes, that's what we should do. <laughs> um, hilarious. So I recommend rewatching it for that scene even alone. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, and this is where the, the, um, the episode gets super um, New York-y, is that turns out that Widewell's arch is none other than Curtis Sliwa of the Guardian Angels. Who is a real person who continues to exist. Um, so, uh, for those who don't know New York stuff so much, uh, Curtis Sliwa was one of the founders of the Guardian Angels in like 1979. They were the group that you probably saw in some documentary or news report of generally dudes wearing red berets and red satin jackets and white t-shirts and like their logo has like an all seeing eye and wings on it. And they established themselves as a subway safety patrol, um, to uh, help people who are riding the subways feel safer, and uh, during the, the day, during the years where it was really hardest to to, to live in New York, um, it's they to to quote their own literature, uh, they are trained in first aid and CPR, 
law, conflict resolution, which is something that maybe cops should be trained in, uh, communication and basic martial arts. Members are paired up and follow the directions of a patrol leader. Um, and you're like probably listening to that and saying, wow, that sounds like like a real interesting citizen engagement model and empowering communities for community policing. And that that might all be true. But the, the problem is Curtis Lewa himself was a massive racist and a liar. So even before uh, he became a notorious right wing pundit on television, like the he like actually lied about some of the Guardian's angels exploits in order to bring more press attention to them. Uh, he claimed he'd gotten he'd fend off kidnapping attempts on the subway which were not even true and he really has a history as you know as much as the guardian angels absolutely did have members who were people of color um the the sort of way that they were addressing the city as sort of being like this chaotic threatening beast it, it's it's very political it's hard to divorce it from a, a conversation about racial perceptions of what is safety um and then Curtis Lee, what today literally goes on television and says racist shit and gets paid for it um, he recently said some completely racist stuff about New York, former New York City Council Speaker Melissa Mark Riverito and was kicked off New York One for about a month and then invited back, which is completely inappropriate. Until recently, he was dating the Queensborough president, Melissa Cat, Melinda Katz. And oh, I was just like, Lord. what in God's name does she see in him? But they split. <laughs> anyway, that's, the, that's, that's who Curtis Lewa is. Uh, so apparently... And it makes perfect sense that Widewell would be a former arch of Curtis Lewa, like the most 80s kingpin thing in the world. Yeah. And of um, course they've made peace because Curtis yeah. Lewa would totally take a buyout, especially so, these days. Yeah. So he sends his, um, his right-hand goon to basically go beat the shit out of him, even though like they, they're in the same poker game and he really doesn't want to. It's like the kind of... Uh, like chief example of punch clock villainy yeah and he's gonna take him out for chops afterwards at Keynes, so it's no big deal <laughs> yeah um so we go from there to dr z's bungalow uh which i love um the did you notice the z on the garage door oh yes uh, that's just so perfect um so he finds out that he's been sent to arch johnny quest and I like my initial reaction was, oh, that poor bastard. <laughs> like, you know, his nerves are so shaky. Um, so we then go to a flashback of like OG Johnny Quest. And I was really impressed. I was like, oh, they're really going back to their roots. And the, the like the litter, the, the scene of like the dog and the, the Anubis head statue, like they almost beat for beat took that from an actual Johnny Quest cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say this season really turning Dr. Z into a full-fledged character was a great move I know some people are resisting the expansion of the cast this late in the series but I really think he's been valuable and I enjoy him oh I've always loved Dr. Z um, but you know what I mean like he's really a full-fledged character now in a way that he was sort of more like a offside sort of a joke earlier um, so you know Going back to this whole thing about nostalgia is like, you know, they changed the visual style of the cartoon to like ape the, the Johnny Quest style. But like they also point out like that there's a super racist hench, uh, like um, uh, sidekick. Psychic. Yeah, sorry. I was going for like hench kid. That's not a word. <laughs> hench um, and the like 
also the plot line of like henchmen thinking that a dog running around inside a statue is the actual god Anubis is kind of ridiculous. Um, and I love the, the thing about Dr. Z saying he's got zero bungle tolerance. Yeah, it's a really nice little flashback. Yeah, so we go from there to radical left and right wing, uh, who find out that they've been told to arch, uh, themselves, basically, or one another. I don't know how you exactly conceptualize that. Because um, they I, are the resident Two-Face of this uh, Yeah, or this and I universe. love their crazy Two-Face house. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just very visually funny. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Dragoon and Red Mantle have been given um, a joint assignment because they are, of course, two heads on one body. Um, and Dragoon wants to arch Al from Home Improvement <laughs> because he's the one person he could think of who would never harm them. So bizarre. Which is... That that feels very much like a public and hammer conversation. Oh, but um, I also like. Of course, that's a TV show they're familiar with because it's old and yeah. stupid. Uh, and they like go into the fact that like these guys don't want to go back in the game because like they remember getting the crap kicked out of them by superheroes, and, and they're now old they're old and frail. And frail. Yeah. yeah, they're like literally the oldest people we see. I can't imagine them having to go out and fight. Yeah. Um. So. Meanwhile, Red Death goes off to make a drop to Blind Rage in Chinatown. I love the design for Chinatown, even though you just see it briefly. It kind of reminded me of the uh, video that Motley Crue shot for Too Young to Fall in Love, which itself is basically a send up of Big Trouble in Little China, which is very San Francisco, but whatever. That's Ah. what it looked like to me. Um, What I really think is valuable to notice is that Red Death crumples up his last arch envelope and throws it in the way and throws it in a dumpster without even reading it. So he doesn't even care what fun little arch thing Watch and Ward have cooked up for him. Uh, He's just going to do what he wants to do. And I think the idea. It's one thing to read it and say, nah, it's another thing to not even open it. I'm like, ah, bold choice. I think that's very revealing about his personality. Yeah. And it's, it's something that we've sort of seen from him from a long time is that like, he wants to be on the council, but we've never gotten a really good. Well, I have a theory now, now that we know that the council can't be doing any active arching, it's a way for him to. You know, his wife wants him to stop getting into fights on the street. And yeah, I so... mean, he has talked about it as his, like, retirement pension. Yeah. But, um, you know, just in terms of, like, what motivates him as a villain, I think, like, we definitely learn a lot more about him this episode than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, we learning about his earlier days in the Gargantua 1 was, like, a big deal. Um, so, uh turns out that radical left and right wing decide to settle uh their arch by a game of clue which i just wrote how because (laughs) they're two halves of the same body clue is a game where you try to hide your cards from your opponent your two eyes are in the same face how would you actually logistically do that but apparently i think what is it um uh, Radical Left is winning best three out of five. So, okay. <laughs> um, so we then go back to Ventec Towers, 
plumbing the depths of patheticness, note I didn't say pathos, by having Rusty practice with Dean, who is carrying the gender fluid to torch du jour between the brothers' venture. Right, because as you've pointed out, often um, often Hank is like the one who's sort of gung-ho about like, I'll just like a, like a girl and role play this, no problem. Yeah. Although, one of the things uh, that I noticed... Dean's, I'm sorry. Dean's done it before because he almost got married to Baron Underbite. Oh, shit, and, that's right. And uh, in the music, his like dance moves in the, in the um, music video. Oh, that's true. God bless him. Yeah, well, so I, both um, brothers but, got it know, going on. But I, I think one of the first things I noticed when he comes in through the elevator is that he's taller than his dad. That's true. Although it's a little hard to tell sometimes just because Rusty stoops. This is true. I mean, he's got the hunched over from your desk thing, but it makes me wonder about their status as literal clones or not, since they're right. taller than their dad. So uh, Rusty's dating game is being thrown off by all of the poison countermeasures that he's taking, uh, which is leading to those, this like really weird, like, um, I hesitate to use tease, but like kind of advance and retreat because like he can't actually make physical contact or he, he thinks that he's going to get poisoned. Yeah. Um, but he's very playing into the Black Widow thing. Like, he's playing up like, hey, you know, I don't have a will and I'm incredibly rich. So, you know, kill me. Um, I don't know. It, it seems a strange strategy. Like, is yeah. is the idea that, you know, you, you have the, the crazy sex and then don't? Uh, you know, and then try to survive the assassination attempt, but you're still <laughs> I think that like, is what he's married to someone who wants to kill you. Although he's, did he get married to their mom? I don't remember. I don't think so. Although there's the whole like um, uh, unreliable timeline narrator. Yeah, I have so many questions about that. Um, I yeah. think that's one of the big questions of the series, even though they've sort of hinted around answers. Yeah, so um, we go from there to... Uh, Phantom Limb and hunter-gatherers, they go to square off in Central Park at the famous Bow Bridge, a bridge which has been featured in such romantic classics as Manhattan, The Way We Were, and Keeping the Faith. Uh, it's a really iconic location, and um, it looks like they're going to have a gentleman's duel. That's what I expected. It was going to maybe even involve some smacking someone in the face with a glove before pulling out a single shot pistol. But no, it's a dick measuring contest of the literal kind. And that's freaking hilarious, which makes their conversation that they had earlier. I can just hear Hunter Gatherers saying on the phone, what are you proposing? Some sort of a dick measuring contest? And I don't really do a good Hunter S. Thompson voice, sadly. And then um, Phantom Limb saying like, yes, actually, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love that pivot. It's just like, we're just going to be honest about what we actually mean here. Yeah, and it's all the weirder because, as far as I remember, Phantom Limb's dick got blown off during the Battle of Cremation Creek, and the alchemist took it home with him. You know, I that's why I think Phantom Limb won, is because he had it rebuilt, $6 billion man style. So he was uh, able to have it built to before. any specs he wanted. Exactly. That's my current, okay. current take um, on that. And their pairing actually works quite well because... Uh, back in season three, we learned that uh, Hunter Gathers and Brock got demoted 
uh, when they were investigating Phantom Limb as a member of the then covert uh, Guild of Calamitous Intent. And Phantom Limb is just the er Guild of Calamitous Intent character. Like, I think we might have even been introduced to it existing through one of his plot lines. Well, and also that uh, his, you know, uh, his family, the Phantomos family, were members of the guild um, from the founding. And that's why, like, he challenged the uh, Sovereign um, and why Dean was very, very, very briefly the Guild of Calamitous Intent Sovereign. Um, back yeah. during the Revenge Society. So, like, yeah. he, it's in the family, so to speak. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic, you know, with Hunter Gathers really being the head of OSI now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we then go to, like, a real... This is, I think, the heart of the episode. Mm-hmm. Is Blind Rage finds... Uh, wakes up to find himself tied to the train tracks. And we get another amazing Clancy Brown monologue about da, the gentleman da, da. villain... Um, See, appropriate and, use of suspense music. And, like, what the the sort of, I don't know, symbolism of tying people to the train tracks is and why a ticking clock is better than a digital clock. And it, it actually reminded me a lot of the monarch in that kind of, like, hashtag do it for the aesthetic sensibility. Like, this is why out, he's a yeah, villain. Absolutely. But you, you also pointed out the sound cue. Yes. Um, yeah, that... Sorry, I'm misremembering. What that you notice that the that the, 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 that uh, J.G. Thorwell's score kicks in with a very Western theme in that moment. Yes. Um, yeah. So, like, it. I feel like we learn a lot about Red Death in this scene because it's very much like you know what motivates him as a villain. Like we saw him as like a '80s counterculture rebel villain. And here we sort of see, like, the older, matured Red Death as, like, an aficionado of, um, I mean, silent film? Like, yeah. this, is, this is kind of, like, almost pre-pulp villainy. Mm-hmm. He, he, if his face was capable of having a curled mustache, he would have one. Yeah. For mustache twirling. Uh, so he basically says, like, okay, I'm going to tie you to the train tracks and I'll... You know, you can try to escape, and if you escape, great. If you don't, too bad. And then on comes the either the D or the N train, because it's the Manhattan Bridge, and one or the other of those just flattens that motherfucker. But most likely, it caused the delay on the train tracks for road da- for for damage or disruption on the rails, which means it's literally their fault that I'm late. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Cuomo is definitely in the Guild of Calamitous Intent, right? Oh, totally, totally. Uh, so... I hear if you say Andrew Cuomo's name three times while looking in the mirror, Joe Prococo materializes and breaks your kneecaps. (laughs) So, uh, we cut from there to Dr. Z uh, visiting Johnny in the rehab center and coming to the realization that, like, Johnny is all he has left. Um, yeah, this is where, like, you know, I, I have to say, I thought their their whole plot line was very sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, we find out that uh, Dragoon and Red Mantle still haven't opened the envelope because they've gotten distracted by a binge session of Downton Abbey. It's really which, avoidance at that point. Yeah, I mean, but it's also like, of course, that's the thing that they would do to avoid the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, 
it's perfect retiree television. So true. Yeah, so we then cut from Dr. Mer- uh, Doctor Mrs. and Gary dressed as Opair and Moppet just walking down the street. And, like, Gary sort of has a freak out that, like, they're going to Ventac Tower and that the monarch is going to, you know, have a fit about that. But then what they're really talking about is the idea, the theme of, you know, embracing change. Uh, that Gary wants to... Get rid of the ponytail. I can speak from experience. That's usually a good call. <laughs> um, and Dr. Mrs. is having, like, cold feet about whether to approach uh, Novia and Archer. Yeah, it's it's an interesting moment. Like, Gary just sort of takes the initiative that he's going to be the one who's going to make it happen so that she won't have the regret of not doing it. And what I love is that as soon as Novia sees them, she's really friendly and excited to see these folks from the past. Um, She is this like, you know, super statuesque woman and uh, Dr. Girlfriend has never looked smaller um, or younger in her modern guise than she does here. And she's wearing her old original costume, which she doesn't like, which is like, yeah, it's it's a really lousy costume. And um, I have to wonder, like, how did that costume get assigned to her? Since she's such an amazing fashion plate later on, perhaps it's a skill she learned later in life. It is It is interesting because, like, we see um, in the same episode in which uh, she and uh, the monarch get married, like, we see her rejecting a number of costumes uh, for being too sexualized. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting, like, maybe this was the best of a bad lot. Wow, that's po- quite possible. Um, I just love that Novia is like, oh, it's so good to see you. I- I'm going to connect with another woman in the business. Like, we're going to have a moment together. And then Sheila is just struck by, I mean, Sheila is a woman who has no female friendships at all yeah. right now. And I think it was emotionally overwhelming for her to realize that this woman who is her antagonist is actually somebody who she might have a great deal in common with. And also offers an alternate look of what her life might have been like had she made some other choices. Like, she literally says that. And it's a moment where she questions her life direction. And I I just really buy this whole exchange. It feels incredibly real to me. I, I really hope that they have the opportunity to bring her back in another episode and have them talk again. And I don't think they will. And I wish that they would. That would really be going into a conversation about women's relationships in a way that the show doesn't really do. Um, yeah, so I, was, I think that, yeah, and I, I think the whole question s- of like, is this your rival? Is this your potential best friend? Um, and, and seeing Novia in her modern clothes, she's wearing white still, but she's wearing this like very chic modern getup. Sheila is really looking, wearing her nostalgia of her old outfit and feeling like it's really embarrassing and not as cool. Yeah. And I did think there was something very New York running into someone on the street about the whole interaction. Mm, yeah totally and i was like you know in terms of the way that they've been talking about this relationship it's almost like you know two exes meet many years later and like they're both struck by like how the other one has aged because notably like novia is not looking like she did when she was younger uh but she's very much like kind of uh aged well like she's kind Mm -hmm. of looks very distinguished yes um whereas like Dr. Mrs. wearing this costume as opposed to her current uniform is kind of a regression. Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of interesting. So 
yeah, how does how does Sheila react to all of this? I mean, you know, she she stop, starts like as she's crying, talking about like her life direction and not being sure about wanting to do this. Which is I really wish that I I understand why the show cut away, and I really wish that it hadn't. I would have loved to have heard more dialogue from them. But we go from there to Doctor Z talking with Johnny about moving in, and I thought it was very sweet that he brings him the Anubis head. Um, as just sort of like a, a physical example of um, nostalgia. Uh, it's I a souvenir for him. It's a gift. Yeah, I wasn't as into the whole kind of like, I love you, but not in a gay way. Greek love, let me explain Plato thing. That was not a no homo. That was a, I did not love you in a way that was inappropriate for me being an adult who knew you as a child. I have like the most sensitive, quote, no homo, quote, radar in the game, if you ask me. And I just thought there was Dr. Z trying to make it clear that his interest in him was not based on predatory feelings towards having known him as a child. Yeah, I guess. It's just that this show has such, like, a, a negative track record when it comes to, you know, pedophilia jokes that I yeah, just, I yeah, so definitely. I mean, but I think he's this. trying, to, and it's true, they could have just avoided it altogether. So I guess what I'm saying is, maybe you're right, like, the show could have avoided that part of the exchange, but Dr. Z, if it was going to be brought up, I don't think Dr. Z is homophobic at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's certainly very, like, his sexuality is rather fluid. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a moment where, like, Johnny wants some money instead of moving in, which is, like, that's kind of an issue if you're... That's his old pattern, his old pattern of being an addict. Yeah, exactly. Um, but... That, like, they connect over old times and, like, it ends with Johnny offering to, like, run and hide, which is, like, what Johnny Quest always did. And, like, Dr. Z is, like, totally into this. He wants to do this. He wants to to go back into that past. And, like, for me, that was, like, you know, okay, there's the theme of the episode is, like, Mm -hmm. wanting to recapture that and it being, I, I like that it was a mutual thing and not, like, an imposition. Yes, that's totally true. It was the most consensual arching that has ever happened, basically. Yeah, I mean, especially if you think back to, like, when we see Dr. Z and Johnny meet in the um, kids' camp episode. Like, previously, Johnny was absolutely traumatized by seeing Dr. Z. Um, So it, it suggests some sort of real growth and, again, theme change. Yeah, and I think... Dr. Z's attitude represents almost the most healthy thing we've seen. Like he can appreciate and revel in the nostalgia of the past, but it doesn't keep him from moving forward or developing. Right. So we then go to Dragoon and Red Mantle, speaking of this whole issue of, you know, the passage of time, and they find out that they don't have a target because all of their arches predeceased them, which they take as we won. That's how you, you know, it's the sort of, you know, there's, um, you know, old, uh, what is it? Old cell swords. Old, old, and age, is the gre- old age is the greatest revenge. Like Yes. Um, so, you know, I like that that was their ending because, you know, frankly, like they deserve a retirement. You know, they had their heads stuck on bodies. It's, it's a lot <laughs> to go through. Uh, so meanwhile, we cut from there to the actual date uh, where Rusty is so hopped up on different forms of anti-venom that he's like brutally honest about what he's about, but he's also acting super drunk. Um, and that's kind of working because like, I guess, uh, Teresa is not used to 
like that kind of honesty. Yeah, I think it says that like being vulnerable and honest is like at least she knows what she's dealing with. Yeah, uh, and she says that like her reputation has been exaggerated. That like she's got skeletons in her closet, but she's not actually a black widow. Not uh, really is I think I think the idea of Dick Night Dick as her ex who's trying to 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 frame her is just totally real. Anyway, so he passes out, and like she puts her hands up like I didn't do it. Um, as the end of their date, uh, in sort of typical Venture Brothers like uh, deflation, <laughs> uh, deflationary fashion. So meanwhile, we cut to uh, the. Um, uh, it's like an Uber limo. that they're taking. Well, I think it's like a guild limo because she's usually okay. driving around in one. Um, and she's cutting off Gary's ponytail. And... With, I believe, a nail file, which is why it's taking a long time. Ah, uh, and she reveals that like. She lifted Novia's wallet, so like she did her arching in her own way, which I kind of like. And she reveals that Gary uses LA Looks gel. Let me tell you, do not use that product. Yeah, um, many uh, many sartorial mistakes are made of uh, by geeks of a certain certain age and look who decide that a ponytail is a good idea. And let me just say, as a recovering one of those. Not a good idea. Go straight past it. Uh, anyway, so we go from there to uh, the post credit scene where it turns out that Wide Whale uh, refuses to join the council. Um, yeah. And I think it's like a question of, is he doing it because he's even more old school that he's... I mean, again, like he fought to have a seat on the council. That was one of the things he wanted. But in reality, I think it's mostly that he just doesn't like being so separated from his empire and he wants to literally be in new york doing new york focused things yeah um, i don't i don't think it's it's an old school thing because he seems to be so uninterested in arching like he he doesn't really do it himself he's he's not really about it he just like i think he likes being just like a you know a criminal who happens to be somewhat whale dna'd yeah. Um, and then, of course, the like the central crux is that like everyone else answers, but Doctor Mrs. doesn't. So we end on this moment of ambiguity. You know, I I really am invested in knowing what she'll decide for sure. But I also was thinking she hasn't been hasn't been Doctor. She hasn't been Monarch's co hench co leader in a long time. She's been completely focused on guild stuff. And he was completely focused on Blue Morpho stuff for really quite a long time. I can't even remember the last time I saw them really be partners in this. And it had I mean, to be season thing, five, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, most couples don't have the same job as each other. And yeah. that should be fine. Like, I, I really hope she stays in the council. She's incredibly good at this. It would completely fall to pieces without her. And it's not like... You know, it's not like she is an essential piece of what like the monarch wants to do. He just, he, he wants to have all of her attention and, you know, having the same exact job as your spouse spending literally all your time with them. That's not really a great solution. And for most people, hmm. um, I guess the question is sort of what, given that that was what they had in common, like, you know, what is their, I guess the, the the question is like, so what holds the relationship together? Like, and that's been something that we've been like struggling with since. I mean, 
easily season five is that like you know when when they're spending all of their time apart they don't seem to be communicating very well they seem to be you know unhappy with one another so i don't know the which way it'll go but that's definitely a thing that they would need to work on like really they need couples counseling and i think it would do them a world of good because i just i think the idea that she needs to literally work with him every day is really mis really misguided but you're right that their communications where they're not working closely together are really flawed so my advice to them would be go into couples counseling but maintain your independent careers yeah um so that's the episode and that's my professional advice as a fake couples therapist <laughs> thoughts or sorry yeah. any overall well, thoughts yeah, definitely. So, you know, this episode was really interesting. I, I absolutely am less obsessed with it than I was last week's, of course, but that was a pretty personal one. Um, I think that we've, as we've learned more about the peril partnership, I think that the question is like, they kind of remind me of the, uh, what we, what are jokingly, not jokingly, what are we call like independent unions, which are unions that are sort of operators that will work with management to take money and keep a better union from representing the workers. They're like a corrupt sort of a mafia thing. And the Peril Partnership, I thought maybe they were playing that kind of role in the dynamic. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to necessarily put a stamp on. I, I, we need to sort of see more of their members and see how they play. But I think we finally do know exactly why Agent Kimberly cares that 646 was with the Peril Partnership. Namely, that the Peril Partnership are villains who think it's who wish that they could be having fights on the street where civilians are, and that is at odds with what her goal is at OSI. In a way that, if he was Guild, it wouldn't quite be as at odds because they'd both be keeping the public from getting endangered by the shenanigans. Fair enough. Um, uh, I liked the yeah. episode overall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were uh, bits of it that I thought worked better than others, but, you know, I felt like it was a sort of a good elaboration on the kind of themes that they've been working with this season. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to, to next week. So where can our listeners find you online? Uh, sure. So you can find me online at Stephen Atwell on Twitter, at Race for the Iron Throne uh, on WordPress and Tumblr, uh, if you're interested in the intersection of pop culture and history. And I'm on Twitter at Elana, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Graphic Policy, of course, is graphicpolicy.com, where you should go for all of your comics, news, and reviews. Uh, I'm going to be speaking in, in person, actually, at Kevin Geeks Out About Shock Rock, a talk and screening at Alamo Drafthouse on October 26th. I, of course, will be speaking about the works of one Alice Cooper. I encourage you to get tickets in advance at Alamo Drafthouse website, because it is definitely selling out. Uh, I'm also on two different panels at New York Comic Con. Um, Both are on Saturday. So uh, I have both of those up on my Twitter. You can get that information there. So thank you for joining us again. And um, we're going to try to sign off. We're going to say, go Go Team team Venture Venture Podcast. Damn Damn it. Uh.